What better Dallas Seminary than the Dallas Cowboys? Amen. <laughs> I was preaching down in Dallas one time, and I saw their new stadium, and I said, man, I really like your new stadium. My boys from Pittsburgh are going to have fun coming down here. And they booed me. <laughs> you know, when you're preaching, that's not the best way to start. But, hey, um, thank you for having me back. It's good to be here. Um, I want to give a shout out to my sponsor, you know, Niagara College and Alliance Theological Seminary. We're still standing. <clears throat> it's been a rough few years for Christian higher education, but God's still working. In fact, <clears throat> we have one of my students is here, Matthew Smith. Matthew, wait. Matthew and another one of our grads, they lead a ministry called New City Kids. And they are doing a work with kids that's incredible. And he's got a golf tournament coming up, a fundraiser, um, May 23rd. And if I could be there, I would, but I'll be in Jordan. But uh, if you go up and you want to help out a great, worthy ministry, uh, talk to Matthew and get you connected. Um, I also want to give you uh, greetings from our new president, Raja Matthews. Um, Niagara's been around 140 years, and uh, President Matthews is our first non-Anglo president, and he has been a joy to work with, a brilliant <laughs> businessman. Doesn't come from an education background, which is exactly what we needed right now. We needed a businessman. And so you be in prayer for him. He's doing some really innovative things, and it's been great working with him. The other thing I'll mention is that what COVID meant for evil, God meant for good. And in the middle of COVID, a bunch of our Alliance Theological Seminary alumni stepped up, raised money, and we were able to outfit all of our classrooms with cameras and live stream equipment. And so it's easier to go to ATS than ever before. And uh, this semester I'm teaching a class on Tuesday night, Matthew's in there on Tuesday afternoon. I, in my Tuesday afternoon class, I have a student that tunes in from Africa. I have no idea what time it is, but the guy seems to stay awake the whole class, you know, because I can see him on the screen. But um, if you want more information, just go ahead and take a, take a scan of that. And I know some of us can't figure those things out, but it's called a QR code, and you can get some more information about both Alliance Theological Seminary and Niagara College. Well, before I pray, in the middle of COVID, uh, actually right at the beginning of COVID, I was praying one day, this was March 2020, the day, the month that all began, and um, the Lord spoke to me with a verse from Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 5. The verse says this, who is this coming up out of the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? And when I looked at that verse, it was like the Lord was saying, you're about to enter a wilderness. Now remember, we had no idea how long this wilderness was going to last. Remember in March, we think, ah, a couple weeks, maybe a few weeks, maybe a couple months. We had no idea what a wilderness we were about to enter. And during that time, I believe there was a lot of people that leaned on a lot of different things. Netflix, Amazon Prime, <laughs> drugs, alcohol. And I felt like what the Lord uh, spoke to me is, if you will intentionally lean on me in this season, when you come out the other side, you'll be transformed. Because who or what you lean on in the secret place will either make you or break you. Father, as we look into your word this morning, as we look at your truth, we ask that you would transform us, that you would renew us, and that you would do a new thing in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In January of 2021, I read an article in the Christian Post on the 20 top news stories of 2020. 
I expected to see COVID there. I expected to see the racial uh, injustice issues, uh, the social upheaval. But what I didn't expect to see was that six of the 20 stories were about Christian leaders who had crashed and burned, who had phenomenal reputations and big ministries, but when their secret life was exposed, they were seen to be wanted. And as a leader who is equipping leaders, I said, I gotta look into this, I have to study this. And so I started a little research on the whole concept of secret life. And what I discovered is that the content of your secret life will either make you or break you. Now, I don't know if you have ever been in a conversation with somebody, and as you're talking with them, all of a sudden you have the feeling, you know, this person is hiding something. You ever felt that way? Well, if you did, you were right. But I got to tell you, if they at the same time thought, you know, this person is hiding something, they were right too. Because the reality is, and research proves it out, that we all have a secret life. Columbia Business School in 2017 did a study on the psychology of secrecy. Uh, what they found is in our research, we find that 97% of people are keeping a secret right now. The other 3% are lying. Okay. <laughs> he goes on and says, the average person who currently has 13 secrets at a time, five of which they have never told a single soul. And so the reality is, it's a fact. I have a friend that likes to say, I'm going to die with no secrets. I'm like, no, you're not. Because the reality is, all of us have a secret life. Um, there's a tool that was developed in 1955 by a couple of businessmen. Maybe you've seen it before. It's called the Jahari Window. Uh, I think it's helpful for us in what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, when you look at the Jahari Window, the upper left-hand quadrant is known as the arena. That's your public life. That's what you know about yourself and everybody else knows about you. You know, that's where you say, I'm an open book. You know, you know me. This is who I am. It's your public life. The bottom uh, left-hand quadrant is your blind spot. That, that's the things you don't know about yourself, but everybody else does. Okay, that's when we lack self-awareness. That's, to be honest, that's why we need our wives. Uh, that's why, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's difficult. But how many of you know our wives speak the truth to us when we'd rather not hear it? And Lord, give us good godly friends that will help us with our blind spots as well. The bottom right-hand quadrant is the unknown. That's the things that you and I have forgotten. We don't know and nobody else knows. And that's actually the place that God will often stir things up to bring healing. And so it's an important quadrant, although we really don't know what's there. Well, what I want to talk about this morning is that upper right-hand quadrant. And that's the things that you and I know about ourselves and no one else does. And again, according to the research, we all have that place where we have secrets. And often our default setting is that the secrets are a place of unhealthiness and darkness. And when somebody says, do you have a secret life? We almost always default to that negative, dark side. But I want to argue that it is possible to have a healthy secret life as well. In fact, I think it's necessary to have a healthy secret life. I think the only way we overcome the secret life of darkness is with a secret life, life of godliness. And how do we do that? That's kind of the question this morning. Now, let's talk about the healthy secret life. Um, my wife and I have been married for be 38 years. I, I always have to be careful to get that right. Um, 38 years this summer, I, I was actually doing a big Korean conference last year, and I said, uh, 
I'm going to celebrate 37 years of marriage this summer. And they all cheered. And I went 10 years to the first wife, six years to the second. And they all just went, and I went, I'm just kidding, just joking. I realized my humor wasn't cross-cultural. Um, but yeah, 38 years. Now, when we got married 38 years ago, I had probably not had the best premarital preparation. My premarital preparation was living four years in a men's dorm. How many of you know that's really not the ideal incubator for living alone with a woman? And so when we got married, I thought practical jokes was the thing to do. I mean, I, I, I would throw cold water over the shower, you know, and she would, what? This is not the dorm. But the biggest gripe she had was that I had no sense of discretion. And we'd be out someplace and I'd start telling things about our marriage and about our relationship. And she would give me the look. You guys ever got the look? Like, what are you saying? Why would you tell them that? And I had to learn that discretion and a healthy secret life is part of intimacy. I have to say, after 38 years, I still get that look once in a while. But I'm growing and I'm learning that there's a healthy secret life between a husband and a wife. I also have a friend who's very prophetic. He's one of those guys that I just trust. When I need someone that hears from God, I go to him. And I was talking with him one time, and, and he shared with me that he probably does not share publicly 50% of what he gets from God. And I looked at him and I said, well, why in the world did God tell you that? And he said, well, I asked him once. And he told me, I love to share my secrets with my friends. See, guys, I think you can gauge the health of your spiritual life, not by your arena of life. In fact, I think you can argue that, that people that are getting their life and identity from the arena, from the public life, actually are setting themselves up for a corruption in their life. We've seen what happens with the celebrity pastors who neglect the secret life and get their life from the public life. And so I think we've got to learn to go deep in the secret life and build that reservoir of life with God. So we all know the verses, though, about the dark part of the secret life. In fact, here's one from Numbers 32. This is where two of the tribes had received the inheritance of the land and the other ten hadn't yet received it. And Moses is telling these other two tribes, listen, you've got to help them. You've got to help them inherit what God has given them. And then he says to them, but if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you. <clears throat> now, I wish I had a dollar for every time my mother quoted that verse to me. <laughs> you know, she would wave her finger. I can still see her. Wave her finger and say, be sure your sins will find you out. And so I grew up with a little distorted image of God, that God was the one who was going to catch me, who was going to, you know, unveil and shame me. And then I would read verses in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, and said, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes, and He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And of course, with my default setting, that secret life is dark and you know, it's about sin, uh, I was thinking negative. Oh, no, He's coming. He's going to expose me. But look at the second part of that verse. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So it seems like even though our default setting is that secret life is the place of darkness and hiddenness, God 
has a goal for you and a goal for me, then you would have a secret life with him, a reservoir of righteousness and intimacy that when he comes and reveals it, people would say, ah, that's where the death came from. That's where the death came from. It's also what Paul is referencing, I believe, in Galatians 6, where he says, whoever sows, and I would say, whoever sows under the ground of their life in the secret place to please the flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. But there's another side to it, the healthy secret life. Whoever sows under the ground of their life to the spirit, to please the spirit, the spirit will reap eternal life. So I, I think we have to say, how do we get rid of this dark secret life? Let me tell you what won't work. Accountability alone will not set you free. And so part of our men's ministry, we had all these men's groups, it was accountability. It became places where they would share their sin with one another. But that's where it stopped. And it became a little unhealthy. It was kind of this cathartic release. Oh, I shared my sin, you share yours. And it became a sin-swapping kind of accountability. But no one was getting free. And it reminds me of what A.B. Simpson said years ago. One of my heroes, he started NIAC. He said this, It is not the eradication of the sinful nature that gives us freedom and true holiness. In, in fact, uh, Simpson would argue, you're never going to be free from your sinful nature until Jesus returns, until we get to heaven. It's going to be there. But what Simpson said, the key to your freedom, is the habitation of the Holy Spirit. That when your secret life with the Holy Spirit becomes greater than the secret life of darkness, the darkness does not stand a chance. So how do we get free? Let me give you three tips this morning. Uh, and it comes from Matthew. Jesus had some things to say about this secret life. Look what it says here. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. That's the arena life. Now here's the context. He's confronting the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the ones who were all about appearance and image. And, and Jesus is exposing them in that. He's saying, look, don't live that way. Instead, he said, give, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with comments, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And throughout this passage, Jesus says this again and again. He's calling them to develop secret life disciplines. When you pray, don't do it in public to be seen by others. When you fast, don't do it to earn a merit badge from everybody else, but do it in the secret place. And then that phrase is key. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now what Jesus is saying here is you've got to have a secret life with God. You've got to have a secret life where no one else is applauding you. But the applause of one from heaven is enough. And friends, I'll tell you, when you hear the applause of God in your life, the applause of man, the applause of this world, will never come close to matching. So let me give you three tips coming out of this passage. How do we get free from the secret life of darkness and kind of foster and nurture this secret life with God? Well, first... 
it does start with some healthy accountability. We do have to find safe places where we can turn the light on where there has been darkness. This is clearly taught in 1 John, where John says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness. Now, that doesn't mean to walk in sinfulness or necessarily some dark deep. It means to walk without disclosing, to walk without being honest. And he says, if we do that, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, now please understand the metaphor. That doesn't mean to walk in perfection. It means, yeah, I'm far from perfect, but I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to fake it till I make it. I'm going to walk in the light. I'm going to disclose in a healthy way. And when you walk in the light, guess what? You get fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, what does that look like? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like you standing up and confessing all your sins to 60 men at a men's breakfast. We're not going to do that today. Because that's not going to be helpful. But it does look like trusted spiritual directors, people in your life that have proven that they can handle the truth about you. And there's got to be people in your life that know what's going on in your secret life. Uh, I have three friends that I work with at Alliance. And quite a few years ago now, we did what we call a full life confession together. We said, guys, you know, we know we're forgiven. We know there's no condemnation. But there's areas of our life that it's like the enemy has leverage on us. And we need to get together. We need to get real. And so we went to a place. We locked the door. We, we swore each other to confidentiality. And we did this full life confession together. And it was one of the most intense, painful days of my life. But when we came out, we felt incredible for you. And we kept short accounts with one another. Just last week, one of those guys called me into my office and said, Ron, can I talk to you for a minute? I need you to pray with me. I'm struggling like never before with this issue. And he shared with me. And I said, yeah, let's pray together. And it's keeping those short accounts and making sure that you're bringing into the light what needs to be brought into the light. But that's not enough. We've got to then uh, also, by the way, Sleepian says this, people often feel alone in their secrets. This is the guy that did the study on the psychology of secrecy. He said, they feel alone with their secrets, ashamed and inauthentic. The burden of a secret seems not based in having to occasionally conceal it in conversation but rather in having to be alone with the secret and live with it without others' help. So what he's saying there is there a, there's a burden to keeping a secret. And, and we are now seeing that we are holistic beings, and when you are hiding something and carrying the burden of a dark secret, it affects your health, it affects your immune system, it affects your relationships. And so there's got to be a place where we say, I, I have to unburden this, I have to bring it into the light. But there's more. The second thing is we've got to learn to embrace secret life spiritual disciplines. And that, that's what Jesus was talking about when he talked about praying in the secret place and giving in the secret place and fasting in the secret place. He's talking about practicing spiritual disciplines that will make space for God to work in your life. Now, I want you to remember that spiritual disciplines alone are not transformative. If you just fast without an understanding that you're making space for God, all you're going to do is starve yourself. 
But if you fast, understanding that you are, you are saying by that discipline, God, I'm going to prioritize my spiritual appetite for you over my physical appetite for food, then you just open the door to let God come in and do the work. This is what Richard Foster says about the disciplines. He says, the disciplines themselves, however, are not transformative. The transformation is us is God's work. It's a work of grace. You and I can't change ourselves, and accountability alone cannot transform us. But when we will make space for God, there's a supernatural accountability that comes to the deepest place of who we are and brings His transforming grace. So what does this look like? Let me give you two examples of people practicing secret life disciplines. When I was teaching at the undergrad years ago, uh, I had a student named Matt. And Matt came to me one day, and he had an envelope with $1,000 cash. I said, thank you. Yes, you can have an A. Uh, just kidding. He, so he, he handed me this $1,000 in cash, and he says, uh, would you give this? And he named another student. And I said, why? And he said, well, I heard that he was short on tuition. He was going to have to leave if he didn't pay his bill. And, you know, God's blessed me. I'm fine. So would you give him this money? I said, why don't you give it to him? He said, no, you know, I've heard what you've been saying in spiritual formation about secret life, and, and uh, I do too much to get applause from them. And so I'd appreciate it if you would just give this to him and not tell anyone. And over the next three or four years, Matt did that on several occasions and practicing this secret life spiritual discipline of giving so that his applause comes from heaven, not earth. Let me tell you something, it works. Uh, we're about ready to say goodbye to Matt and his wife and four kids. They're heading to Syria to work with Syrian refugees with the Christian Missionary Alliance. Because that guy has fostered this deep reservoir of secret life and it's transformed him. <clears throat> one other example. There's a worship leader by the name of Jeremy Riddle. He's one of my favorite worship leaders. You've heard him. I was doing a conference and he was the worship leader. And I went up to him in the green room after between one of the sessions and I said, Jeremy, I got to tell you, there is an anointing for intimacy on your worship leader. The minute you start to play, I feel like I'm in God's presence. What's the secret? How do you get that kind of intimacy in a group of 3,000? And he goes, well, you know, I appreciate you noticing that, but um, I have to tell you that years ago when I first started leading worship, the Lord spoke to me and said, Jeremy, if you will lead worship more in the private place for me alone than the public arena, then I will bring an anointing on your public life that will bring my intimacy. And he said, I have to confess, years ago it was easy. I was only leading worship one hour a week. And so it wasn't hard to worship more alone with God than I did in public. But now I'm leading at conferences and sometimes I'm leading 14, 15 hours a week and I gotta spend a lot of time in the secret place. Because when you embrace secret life spiritual disciplines, you are opening the door. You're saying, God, I am making space for you so that the habitation of the Holy Spirit overwhelms my sinful nature and my tendency to give myself to the flesh. And he is able to do that. Well, the final tip is this. We have to begin to believe that a secret life with God will always outperform a secret life of darkness. A secret life of darkness. So here's what the enemy does to you. He shows up in your life and he says, 
you have had this sin. You've lived in this darkness for 25 years. You don't have enough time to get free from it. You know, you shouldn't even try. And he whispered that in our ears, but what he is forgetting is what I call the greater than principle. You know the word. It says that greater is the one who is in us than the one who is in the world. And that greater than principle is this. One moment in God's presence, a moment like in God's secret presence of God's power has the ability to embrace months, even years of secret life, poverty, and darkness. Friends, what that means is that when you are in God's presence, when you're making space for God, He can erase what the enemy has been planting in your life for 20, 30 years. Uh, we had a guy in our church in Redding, California, who had been a drug addict for 30 years. His name was Dave Artis. And one night he came to one of the renewal services we were having and the presence of God hit this guy. He repented, I mean, repent with a capital R. He got saved with a capital S. And he was up in the front just weeping and just soaking in God's presence. We're trying to lock up the building and he goes, please don't make me leave. Please let me stay. So one of the guys volunteered to stay with him, was there till midnight as Dave Artis just stood there in the presence of God and wept. He was totally set free. Within six months, we discipled him, made sure he was clean, made sure it was real, and it was. He started leading our Celebrate Recovery ministry. And for the next 10 years, this guy helped the captives get set free. And here was his secret. If I can get addicts, no matter how long they've been in that darkness, if I can get them into the presence of God and let them experience the power of God's secret presence, that's the key. They'll never go back to the drugs. Now, not all of them got free right away. Some of them had to soak a little bit longer than others. But the greater than principle is true and it's real. And when you spend time in God's presence, he can erase months and years and set you free much quicker than you think. And so we've got to start to believe that the secret life of God's presence is going out. Well, here's some secret life disciplines, and I'll talk about them in a second. But let me tell you two stories, and then we'll be done. And I'll make some practical application here. First story is about my dad. It's been four years since my dad passed away at the age of 93. He's a retired pastor, and he was one of my heroes. And when I was a kid, um, I was a preacher's kid, and I can remember on Saturday nights, my dad would take a break from his sermon preparation, and he would watch Gunsmoke with me. Anybody else watch Gunsmoke with your dad? So Saturday night, 8 o'clock, it was either Gunsmoke or Wagon Train, one of those two Westerns, and, and, uh, and we'd watch that together, and then he'd take me into bed, and he'd pray with me, and kind of tuck me in, and then he'd go down to the basement where he had a home office, and that's where he would preach and practice his sermon for the next morning. And it was right underneath my bedroom, so I would drift off to sleep hearing my dad preaching the sermon that I would hear him preach the next day. When I was a teenager, I said, hey, Dad, I already heard your sermon. I don't need to go to church today. <laughs> but I remember when I was young, I'd hear that sermon being preached. And my dad preached with a preacher voice, you know, he, I said, Dad, would you learn to talk like that? He said, no. I said, oh, I hope I don't learn it that way. And, uh, but he had this preacher voice. But at some point during the night, the preaching would turn to praying. One night I snuck down when 
I heard him praying. I saw that he had dropped out of his chair. He was now kneeling at that chair, and he was crying out to God for his congregation, for the power of the Holy Spirit to come. And the next morning, everybody heard the sermon, but only me and God heard the prayer. Only me and God knew that the secret to my dad's preaching was not how many hours to practice and how many homiletics courses he took, but it was the secret life of prayer that he fostered and nurtured that nobody else saw, nobody else applied. My wife has a theory that one of the reasons we don't pray is that no one sees it. What I would argue is that if you pray and nurture that secret life and make space for God, everyone will see the fruit. So when it comes to the distance, foster solitude and silence in God's presence. What is that? That is fasting from noise and busyness and hurry. And sometimes it means just sitting and doing nothing in God's presence, but just saying, I'm here to be with you. Now, I've had people say, well, how is that going to do any good? Well, when my son Bryce was just a little guy, he was hyperactive. I think he got it from his mom. <laughs> yeah, that is a joke. And uh, and he, I'd come home from work and I'd say, hey, Bryce, give me a hug, man. And he'd like, nah, and he'd run, and he'd run around the end tables, and he'd run and run. And so I'd take a seat, and I'd wait. And he would run and run and run, and after about 15 or 20 minutes, he would completely have exhausted himself, and he would throw himself into my arms, and I would hold him, and he would hold him. And he wouldn't say a word, and I wouldn't say a word. But in those moments of silence, in those moments of solitude, I bonded with my son. And your Father in heaven wants to bond with you in the secret place. These are disciplines that make space for him to embrace you, to hold you. Fasting, yes, journaling, giving, Bible study. Let me say something about Bible study. Bible study is not just for you to get revelation to share with other people. Bible study is for you to get revelation that's for you and God alone. There should be a reservoir of truth from God's word that is nurturing your secret life that nobody else ever hears about. I've gotten some sermons that I've said, Lord, this is going to be so good. And he said, that's not for you to preach, which really ticks me off because that's something we're always looking for. But there's got to be the reservoir of secret life. If you preach or share everything God gives you in your Bible study, then you're an exhibitionist, not a lover. And God wants you to nurture that secret place. Well, let me share one last story with you. In the fall of 1984, I had finished Nyack College, um, and I was accepted to Alliance Theological Seminary. Now, I hadn't done that great in college. I think I finished with a 2.8 grade point average, and ATS had to give me a waiver to let me in because I was under a 3.0. But I decided I was gonna study, and I was gonna get straight A's, and I was gonna you know, make up for my lost time in, in college. And so, it, and back then, we had a, a policy that the student that got the highest grade point average, the highest GPA, got to choose the professor that they were gonna be a teaching assistant for. And so, man, I worked and I studied and I got straight A's, I got a 4.0, and I had my eye on a professor. I knew he was the guy that I wanted to work with, and I, man, I was so excited. And at the end of the year, when it was announced that I was the one that got to choose the professor, I went to the office of Robbie Zacharias, who was one of our professors. And I said, Robbie, 
I'm going to be your TA next year. We're going to have a great time. I'm going to help you. I'm going to learn from you. And he looked at me and he said, Ron, I'm so sorry, but I'm leaving ATS to start Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And my heart just dropped. And then he said, but you're going to love the guy that's coming to take my place. His name's Terry Wardle, and he's a United Methodist minister who's an evangelical, and, and you're going to love him. And I'm, I'm going, Terry Wardle. I don't want Terry Wardle. I want Robbie. But how many of you know that God in his grace always gives us what we need and not what we want? Now, we all know what happened with Robbie. And uh, there's no judgment here. It's pain as I share this story. But God knew that I did not need the public life that I could have gotten from Robin. God knew that this guy, Terry Wardle, was going to become my mentor for the next 10 years. And he was going to call me on my secret life. And he was going to show me how to develop a secret life of intimacy with God. And that man poured into me in the secret place. And he gave me a greater gift than I could have ever dreamed possible. And when the news came out about Robbie, I called Terry, and I was sobbing. I said, Terry, do you now see how God protected me and brought me to you? God's one of the greatest gifts to me. Thank you. Friends, listen. God's got a gift for you in this secret place. It's really the key to your freedom. You can't fight it. You can't suppress it. You can't share and get accountable. Now it's about building that secret life with God. And as you do that, he's going to set you free. And he's going to give you a power in your public life that will be unmatched by anything else. We pray with you? I want to encourage you right now just to, if you're comfortable, just put your hand on your heart for a minute. It symbolizes your secret life. Jesus, we come to you this morning and we confess that we all have a secret life. And we're not proud of some of the stuff that's there. But now we recognize that there is a secret life with you that can overcome anything the world, the flesh, and the devil can throw at us. And so I'm asking now for a fresh habitation of the Holy Spirit. Upon these men of God. Come, Holy Spirit, would you wash into the secret place of their life? And I ask, Lord, that you would begin to foster and nurture that reservoir of intimacy with you, that the spiritual disciplines would make space for you, and no one else is seeing it, no one else is knowing it, but the applause of heaven is always greater than the applause of earth. And then, Father, I do ask that the fruit that comes from that secret place would begin to grow and nourish and feed others, that others could then be drawn into that place of intimacy with you, freedom with you, spiritual power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.